Hey guys, this is Cobain. Uh, so I have talked before about the importance of trees in the Bible, why the human family is described in terms of a tree in Scripture. And today I want to extend and develop that, uh, that idea in some more detail. And I want to look at it in terms of the Torah and uh, the five-book Torah and see what we can understand about the nature of that Torah and the nature of how that relates to human life. Uh, the, the only begotten son and so forth. Before I uh, get into that, I want to thank all of my patrons. And I want to say that uh, because of their, uh, their contributions, from now on all videos will be free of any ads which interrupt or precede the video. So I want to ask you guys, would, do you guys mind ads that are just non-intrusive or at the bottom of the video? Um, because if you don't, I can still include those. But if you do, I won't. It'll be completely ad Free. So just uh, just let me know about that. Also, I want to say that I'm sorry I haven't produced videos recently. Um, I've been following the political situation. It's an absolute a tragedy, a travesty. Um, and I would ask that you just pray for me, pray for my sleep. Um, but more than that, please pray for the suffering people of, uh, of Ukraine and follow the instruction of Metropolitan Onofri, who is the canonical head of the Ukrainian church and is... Uh, uh, a living saint. I've heard from witnesses firsthand that he's a man of extraordinary Christian character. But he's asked that we all pray uh, Psalm 91, uh, uh, and that's Psalm 90 in the Septuagint, uh, every day uh, for the people of Ukraine. So please pray for that and for the reconciliation of uh, the Ukrainian and Russian nation. So please avoid avoid any comments on the on the situation in the comments section. These those discussions. Um, they, they very rarely bear fruit, and they almost always do the opposite. Um, please keep it on topic to the present video. Um, but with that said, uh, let's get into today's subject. So um, the idea of a cosmic tree is one of those things which is just everywhere. I've talked many times before about the noachic nature of the cultures of antiquity. I've talked before about how we have to stop thinking in terms of quote-unquote paganism as if Gentile culture prior to the coming of Christ is a pagan culture, as if a righteous person prior to the coming of Christ who was a Gentile is to be described as a righteous pagan. I think what that does implicitly is it desacralizes the history of the nations prior to the coming of Christ, and it misses the fundamental point that all nations were recipients of the tradition of God's self-disclosure that had been transmitted from Adam through Noah. Israel had a special mission in the life of the world, but God did not abandon the nations. We hear of many righteous Gentiles in the Bible, Gentiles who knew about the God of heaven. And we see throughout the world that worship of the supreme God of heaven, worship which even included the idea of a son or a logos through whom he acted, was pervasive in the traditions of antiquity and indeed persisted uh, uh, until the uh, the coming of European settlers in the Americas. You hear about, uh, about believers in the supreme God. Uh, and indeed, um, as I've recently discovered, in Mesoamerica, not only was there a tradition of the heart of heaven, but there was a small group of people who were highly critical of the prevailing religious tradition, which worshipped idols and murdered um, people brutally uh, using... A ritual torture as a center of its liturgical life. There was a small group of people who opposed that and who instead professed the supremacy of the one God. Um, and it's extraordinary how we've just kind of fundamentally missed the significance of this. But what the implication of that is, is that when we see symbolism, which is pervasive across the world, 
we should have a good sense, or, or we should infer on a prima facie level, that this is an aspect of that noachic Adamic tradition, which is divine revelation. And so when we convert a culture to Christianity, we should recognize that we're doing more than simply despoiling the idolatrous Egyptians. Instead, we are actually reaching into that nation and embracing its genuine spiritual core. And that's why it's so important that we be able to tell the story of the nations, which has God as its center. But the idea of the cosmic tree, the idea of the tree as a symbol of the entire world, is one of those aspects which is most pervasive. The trees are associated with temples. Why? Because a temple is a microcosm of the world. It's a miniature representation of the whole creation. The holiest part of Israel's sanctuary is the inner sanctuary, and it is olive wood, which is absolutely central. This is, as James Jordan says, a tree house. In the last feast of Israel's uh, liturgical calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles, it celebrates the coming of God to dwell in the world. And in terms of Israel's story, it celebrates their inheritance of the land, and it celebrates the coming conversion of the nations, which is why they sacrifice 70 bulls, representing the 70 nations, and it is why Zechariah 14 uses the Feast of Tabernacles as the setting and as the language for its prophecy of the healing of the nations and their gathering to the God of heaven and earth. It says, in that day, uh, uh, they will be one and God's name will be one because God has made himself present in all sorts of ways in the life of all nations. So the unification of the nations is a declaration of who God is. And that is why Jesus says, I have made known your name to the world. And then in that context, he pr prays that they may be one, his church would be one, as he and the Father are one, so that the world might know that he is who he says he is. And so we see this has very deep implications for the structure and the story of Scripture. But on the Feast of Tabernacles, people, they wear, uh, uh, they wear, um, uh, palm fronds. They themselves become a tree house of sorts. Um, it just emerged in my mind as I was speaking that there may be some kind of symbolic connection between this and the Feast uh, of Christ's uh, ride into Jerusalem. Actually, that would make a great deal of sense because when Christ rides into Jerusalem, he refers to it as the day of his visitation. He referred, which is a term used to describe the coming of God to uh, visit personally his people, as prophesied in Haggai and elsewhere. Uh, Jesus uh, rides into the city recapitulating David's bringing of the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion. And indeed, that is the only time that there is a sanctuary on Zion. The temple is on Moriah, not Zion. And it is Zion, which is used as the image of the Messianic Age. Uh, many things could be said about that, uh, but I'll just uh, mention on this note that the preeminent way in which God dwells personally with his people, having returned to Zion through Jesus' ride into Jerusalem, is through the Eucharist. Jesus overturns the table in the temple, and then he sets another table. He sets a table in which he is personally present. And that is why Luke 24 is written to recap and remind us of the visitation of the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 6 and 13. And you know what happens there? The angel of the Lord steps on the altar and ascends through the fire on the altar. So we have the idea of the real presence of Christ dwelling through the Eucharistic sacrifice here. So many dimensions could be described. But the Ark of the Covenant is, of course, set in the 
inner sanctuary and where we have olive wood. And we have Noah's Ark, which is a different word from Ark of the Covenant. The association would be great, but a totally different Hebrew word. Um, the, uh, the, the Ark of Noah is essentially a glorified and restructured Garden of Eden. Hey, just look at every time the word tree is used in the Bible, and you'll see there's this theme where God plants a garden, and he commands man to guard and cultivate that garden, that is, preserve the good which God has already implanted in it, and perfect that good, extend it, draw it out, glorify it in a way which truly belongs to the free choice of human beings. Human beings, as Maximus teaches, that's my dog, by the way, uh, choose among various goods and so become partners with God in the ongoing creation and glorification of the world. And as a temple is a microcosm, so also then a tree represents the entire world. You might think of the Jewish image of the, uh, 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 the ten sephirot. So, of course, I'm not endorsing everything associated with this, but it's a very interesting and, and, and cross-centered image, actually, because there are ten creative words in the book of Genesis, in, in Genesis chapter one. Okay? There are ten words. God creates through his word, and that is unpacked in a tenfold sense. And those ten words are associated with the Hebrew alphabet. So we've got the logos and those ten words with 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are distributed across a tree, which is the archetype or paradigm for the world. And so Christ reconciles all things to God on the cross by which he ascends in glory to his father. This is the lifting up of Jesus to draw nations to himself. Thus the union of all nations in him takes place through what? the Eucharist, because through the Eucharist, we become of one body with Jesus. We become members of his body and thus his bride, because the bride and the bridegroom are of one flesh. The bride was taken out of the side of Adam, and so also does blood and water flow from the side of the last Adam as the women stand at the cross. And so it is through the Eucharist, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we, um, uh, uh, that we become the bride of Christ uh, and indeed, uh, if you just study the book of, uh, of John, the Gospel of John, you will find that uh, there are many links between this event and baptism, many links between this event and marriage. You will find, for example, that we are specifically told this occurred at the sixth hour. The only other thing which is mentioned as having taken place at the sixth hour is Jesus is meeting the Samaritan woman at the well where they discuss how she has been with six men altogether. Jesus is the seventh, the true bridegroom who gives the water of life and thus who uh, 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 becomes the source of the life of the bride. And this goes back to John uh, chapter 2, where uh, it is Mary, the virgin, who asks Jesus to do a miracle. And what does he do? He transforms water into wine, which is the blood of grapes, according to uh, Genesis chapter 49. And so we see both blood and water in John chapter 19 in relation to incorporation into the body of Christ. <laughs> you can go in all sorts of directions with this, um, but it's a testimony to the beauty of Scripture. All things are united in Christ. All things are united in his cross. He unites us to God. Thus, we have the vertical dimension of the cross. It extends upwards from earth to heaven. It joins them together. It's a ladder to heaven. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, we read that uh, there will be angels, angels ascending and descending on the person of our Lord Jesus. Well, you know what? That's taken from the book of Genesis, where there are angels ascending and descending on the ladder to heaven, which Jacob sees 
and you want to know something, Jacob sees that ladder to heaven and he goes through a trial, period of suffering. And at the end of that trial, he's going to come to a place called Sukkoth, which means cloud. So the ladder to heaven, we're being, or in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman asks, you are not greater than Jacob, are you? By implication, yes, indeed. And it is the cross, which is the ladder by which we ascend to heaven. Think of the image of uh, uh, of St. John of the Ladder, where you have a ladder extending from earth to heaven. And what do you have there? You've got a competition between angels and devils who want to take men up or down, respectively. So all of these images are the very, it's the very same grammar by which we understand the liturgical and iconographic tradition. It's one of the beautiful things about, I think, um, uh, the Orthodox faith and, and its tradition. So we're united to God upwards. We are the creatures of earth, but we are joined to the man from heaven, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And because God is the archetype, the principle of existence for all human creatures, that horizontal reconciliation brings about a reconciliation through charity towards others. Thus, love God and love your neighbor. These are interior to each other. The former is principally associated with faith, thus the faithfulness of Jesus, and the latter is principally associated with love, thus the love of Jesus. He extends upwards and he extends outwards. He embraces all mankind in the very act by which he embraces God as his supreme good and love. Now let us recall that Jesus, the pre-eternal logos, is the paradigm for the Torah. Why do I say that? I say that because the Torah is wisdom embooked. Okay, the Torah is the word of God which proceeds from his mouth, which is meant as a creative word. This is very important. You must understand that when God speaks in scripture, he's not simply giving information for its own sake. God's word is always living and active. And yes, his word is Jesus, but Jesus is the logos for a reason, and God invented language for a reason, and he wrote it down in the Bible for a reason. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is there in the Torah. Jesus is the one who bears the name of the Lord. Name is an expression of the quality of a thing. And all of God's names are summed up in Jesus, as is said about the angel of the Lord. My name is in him. All of God's qualities are in him. God speaks everything about himself in Jesus. And this is why, woven through the numerical structure of the Torah, in many ways layered on top of each other, expanding outwards, are the two values 17 and 26. These two values 17 and 26 are the reduced and standard values for the Tetragrammaton Yadhe respectively. Okay, you can see my video on numerical symbolism in scripture. Um, this is something talked about explicitly in, in, in the ancient world, uh, including among Jewish Christians. In fact, it was a central argument um, uh, that some Jewish Christians made for the unique messianic identity of Jesus because, well, we'll get into that. <laughs> but there's a good book on the Nazarenes that is these early Jewish Christians, um, which, which discusses this very interesting thread in their theology. And they were the Jewish Christians who believed Jesus was divine. Now, the uh, name of the Lord is associated with text, okay? So God speaks his name so that we can call out the name of the Lord. Um, uh, in many cases, the uh, 
uh, phrase, proclaim the name of the Lord and call on the name of the Lord, are actually identical with each other. They're the same phrase in the Hebrew language. Not every case, but in some cases. And what we're being told here is that we are all meant to be mouth-to-mouth -mouth with God. In the book of Numbers, the what is usually translated face-to-face -face with God in terms of Moses' intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father, is actually literally mouth-to-mouth. Uh, and that is because the union that exists between God and Moses, the union by which God's glory is radiant on his face, is the union which takes place through the word. Now, through the speaking of the name of the Lord, Israel and all of us are enabled to remember God. To remember means to persist in the realization of a particular idea. And that sounds kind of abstract. But what I mean by that is I want you to just imagine that you didn't know the word for computer. Now, if you didn't know the word for computer and you didn't know any equivalent word, just imagine how difficult it would be to keep in your mind all of the various qualities which are united in objects that we call computers. The only way that we can actually continue in our apprehension of things in the world is by keeping words in our mind. They are attached to the substance of things in such a way that they're able to persist in us. Now that idea of memory, of persistence, of continuing tradition, that is linked in the Bible to the idea of books. Now in early Christianity, uh, there was a very unique book culture. There was a unique scribal tradition. Uh, they treated uh, the names of God and of Christ in the earliest biblical manuscript all across the known Christian world. They had this thing called the Nomina Sacra. And the fact that it was so widespread and so early tells us, I think, that it comes in the very earliest period. I think the apostles uh, instructed the churches in a unique scribal culture. And in fact, the Codex, which basically like a bound book in contrast to a scroll which unrolls, the Codex was popularized as a means for transmission of actual books by Christians, for example, in the second century. Uh, while almost all of the manuscripts that we have in the second century are non-Christian texts. Nevertheless, about 80% of the codices that we have in the second century are Christian texts. It's a remarkable disjunction. And what that tells you is that Christians were unique. They had unique symbols of identity, whereby they identified as a single people. Uh, and that, uh, that identity was expressed in books, in a unique approach to books, because the logos had become incarnate, and that has implications for absolutely everything. This is why the emperors uh, who persecuted Christianity there was a special focus on seizing the books that they had. This is why the idea of patristic writings as an exemplification of tradition becomes so important. That notion that there is scripture on the one hand, and then there's tradition to, who, to which the writings of church fathers bears witness. It's very early. We can see this in the collection of certain writings that were... Uh, not just incidentally retransmitted to all the churches, but were intentionally done so. So Ignatius, he writes his letters. Um, 
and these are sent to the various churches, but very often these authors, they would write multiple manuscripts. So they're multiple autographs. They'd write multiple manuscripts. It'd be sent to a central location, for example, the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome would then copy that and retransmit it to all the churches. Many, many aspects of this, which most people don't know, but which are just extraordinary. So, what in the world does this have to do with trees? In fact, despite my proclivity for going off topic, I've not gone off topic at all. The Torah begins with trees. The third creation day, God makes trees and he makes grain plants. That is, plants in which there is seed and trees which are literally fruit trees, fruit-bearing fruit. And that is where the language of being fruitful and multiplying comes from. That is where the language of human beings having seed as their descendants comes from. If human beings have seed, well, as in seed of the woman, uh, if human beings have seed, they must be like plants. We're so used to the language, as I mentioned before, that we don't even notice this correspondence. But if you were reading Genesis 1 um, and you'd never read, read it before, you would notice, and if you weren't familiar with this metaphor, you would notice, wait, why are human beings being described as fruitful? Because as far as I know, we don't have pears growing out of our head. There's a logic to the kinds of metaphors that are used in Scripture because these symbols are inherent to the actual created things themselves. God made trees with human beings in mind. It has to be understood. We must disengage from the naturalism that is pervasive. Even in the most conservative Christian households, it is accidentally transmitted we must, when we look at a tree, when we look at the number of veins that a leaf has, notice again, veins. That's something which is, do, do, do trees have blood? Why do we use the same language like this? We must understand that the creation was meant as an intentional unity. These things are interconnected, reflecting the hand of God, who is present in all things, and who is teaching us something about himself in all things. And the Torah begins with trees, and it actually ends with a strong allusion to the two most important trees, the tree of knowledge, tree of life. Now, some people look at the tree of knowledge, tree of life, they say, well, oh, this is obviously just a pure metaphor. That's just silly to think that, that, that these uh, trees could do anything concretely spiritual. And number one, if we believe that fasting actually does something, you know, it's not just a symbol with no concrete significance. Then we already believe food has spiritual significance. Number two, unless we're Zwinglians with respect to the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, we believe that God does something in a very special way through, quote-unquote, ordinary bread and wine, which is transfigured into the body and blood of Christ. Number three, those who think that this is obviously silly that the world would not be wired in this way, and therefore it's clearly just a metaphor which has no historical content. I mean, there are people who argue that the uh, author of Genesis expected us to understand that just because it was allegedly so crazy to think that these trees were real trees. Well, this is an assumption that is, that is very parochial, okay? I mean, think about the important role that psychedelic drugs plays in uh, so many cultures. Now, I am not endorsing the use of psychedelic drugs. Um, uh, 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 don't recreationally use those. 
Um, but the reason I, I warn so strongly against it is because it really does have spiritual effects. Okay, so um, <laughs> uh, I'll just mention in passing that the conventional scientific theory of what's going on in a psychedelic experience is not sound. It is that it's not an in you would expect if these were all uh, pure hallucinations produced and projected by the mind, there would be a massive increase in brain activity. But there's not. There's actually a very substantial decrease in activity from key parts of the brain. Now, the analogy to this I need you to understand is think about a person who's blind. Okay, a person who can't see at all. He's never seen. When such a person dies, we know this from multiple consistent experiences of near-death uh, of, of patients who um, uh, uh, physically died and then were resuscitated. They see. They can see. Their brain ceases to have this two-way communication between body and soul. But that cessation actually decorporealizes the locus of their conscious qualitative experience. And because they apprehend the world in a different mode, they, in certain ways, can see other things. We begin, remember, as creatures of Earth. We are heavenized, spiritualized, so that the body itself becomes glorious and spiritual, rather than being destroyed or replaced. But what that means is that the first things that we see are corporeal things. We do not see angels as a matter of course. That is not a normative feature of our experience because we are still very young spiritually. And so those things that we see have a strong correspondence with corporeal reality. So this idea that, that, that the tree of life and tree of knowledge, oh, that's obvious, just, just, just a metaphor. Have no, of course it's symbolic, but the idea is it has no concrete reference. It's, it's a very parochial assumption. So the Bible begins, the Torah begins with these two trees. And you go to the end of the book, or the five-book Torah, or the book of Deuteronomy. You know that Torah begins with this exile. Okay, so this is important for Lent. Okay, the Lenten cycle, as, uh, as we approach Lent, just as Lent is about to begin, we sing Psalm 137. How can I sing the song of the Lord while in a foreign land? And we hear of the parable of the prodigal son who goes into a far country but returns from his exile and embraces his father in love. It's, it's kind of funny. You know, people kind of said about N.T. Wright, so, oh, why would, you know, the idea that this is about exile, well, someone should have noticed that. Well, this has been part of the Orthodox liturgical tradition for centuries. <laughs> I mean, over a millennium, it's been part of the Orthodox liturgical tradition. This is fundamentally about exile. But we, we begin with Adam and Eve, their exile from the garden, from the tree of life, and from the tree of knowledge. And we end, Deuteronomy 30, with a prophecy of the regathering of God's chosen nation from their exile and the transformation of their heart. Because human, the human family is one organism, the spiritual disease incurred by Adam on account of the fall, it's transmitted in the multiplication of the human family. That is why in Leviticus uh, chapter 12, um, childbirth brings about ritual impurity. Not sin, but ritual impurity. 
and ritual impurity is always and everywhere about the presence of death. That is why even entering a room with a human corpse will create a very serious ritual impurity. It doesn't mean you can't do it. You have to do it. But you have to go through a very special ritual, Numbers 19, before you uh, go into the presence of God in the sanctuary. And that is why Paul says death spread to all men. This is uh, terminology but a contagion. And that contagion is rooted in the logic of ritual purity and impurity. And remember what our Lord says. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what do we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30? We read that when the heart is transformed, the word of God, the logos of God, in fact, of course, it's written in Hebrew, but I'm not, I'm not claiming a, 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 a um, verbal connection here, just in case anyone would misunderstand. But the logos of God, the word, enters into the heart, gives it a new birth, enters through the heart onto the lips, gives that a new birth. We are to call on the name of the Lord. We are to be of one lip. Remember at the Tower of Babel or Babylon, it was not just a tower, it was a tower in a city. And so there it was a language and a lip. The lip is always or consistently used to refer to the God you confess. David says, I will not take the names of false gods on my lip. Zephaniah 3 says that the nations will be converted to one lip. And that corresponds to the tower, which is a temple. It's the God you worship. There was one false religious or liturgical system which was dangerous because God has wired the world in such a way that he sustains its existence and gives it its life. He holds it in, in, in being through human beings as his image. He freely does that. He doesn't need to do that, but he does that because he's chosen to wire the world in that way. And so when human beings are united in evil, the wiring of the world means that must be, must be broken. It's dangerous for the world. You, the last time human beings were united in evil, the world destroyed them flood fountains of the great deep broke forth windows of heaven were opened because the blood which cried out from the ground kept crying until the world was filled with violence and destroyed the human family which was its oppressor that's why thorns and thistles the ground is the agent in prosecuting the curse it rises up and rebels against a wicked master so the logos goes into the heart and through that it proceeds from the lip. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you shall be saved, Paul says. Heart and the mouth. Heart and the lip. Have the name of the Lord always on your lip. How? Because the Spirit is in your heart praying. It's a theology of the Jesus prayer right there. Moses takes his hand. It's a sign God gives Exodus 4. One of the signs is his dominion over the serpent. Moses type of the Messiah, obviously. And the other one uh, is puts his hand in his robe, so about his chest area, and it comes out leprous. The heart is full of death, we're being told. It's a grave. Then he puts his hand in again, comes out clean. God will transform the heart by and through his word, and thus will renew and give rebirth to the human family. It begins with the nation Israel, the remnant of Israel according to the election of grace. They are given the spirit of God. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 tells us that to those, to that remnant within the nation which turns to God, God will put his spirit on them. And then the nations will come to the brightness of your rising. That pun with the with resurrection language is messianically significant. 
pretty cool. So we begin with exile from trees, Genesis chapter 2 to 3. And we end with ex or return from exile. That's the big story. So this is why we are told how Israel is to partake in a proleptic and preparatory way in trees. God says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, the literary conclusion of the Torah, the return from that exile with which the Torah began, that he has set before Israel life and good, death and evil. That's the language which, with which the Torah began. This is a reference directly to, to, to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Now, what does the Torah have to do with trees? This is one of those things we know, but you have to be reminded of it to understand significance. The Torah is made out of plants. You, you know where paper comes from. It comes from trees or it comes from plants. No matter what kind of paper it is, it comes from some kind of plant. Okay, so it's literally a, a, a plant which expresses the revealed word of God. And we read in, in this very chapter, Deuteronomy 30, yeah, the word of God will be in your mouth and in your heart when the redemption takes place. And so, in Ezekiel, the prophet eats a scroll, as does St. John in, John, or in Revelation chapter 10. And you know who gives him that is the person of Jesus, described as the angel of the Lord, because he is, uh, the communion of saints is described in terms of angels in the book of Revelation, even when men are in view, because what we're being shown is that we are exalted to that heavenly council where only the angels previously were enthroned. And so Jesus is described in his office as angel of the Lord, even as he is in the incarnate last Adam. And he says to John, take and eat. And we are told that it tastes like honey. Well, the taste of honey recalls the manna from the Old Testament. I eat the manna from heaven, as we read in John chapter 6. Take and eat. Well, that's a quotation from the uh, Lord's Supper. Take and eat. This is my body and so forth. And yet it is a book which John eats, i.e. the Word. How do we eat the Word of God? We partake of the Eucharist, which is the incarnate Word of God, made present to us and made present in us, and thus made present to the world through us. That's why our mission to the whole world begins at the sanctuary, wherein we receive the indwelling Word of God, through whom the world was made and thus through whom it is remade in us.